Samuel chapter 8. And it's always helpful to have a Bible that you can refer to as I preach through the text. And if you don't have one, there's a blue one in front of you. And page 230 is where you can find 1 Samuel chapter 8. And then I'm going to refer to in the sermon Deuteronomy 17. So once you find 1 Samuel chapter 8, turn left a few uh, books and you'll find Deuteronomy chapter 17, which is on page 160 if you're using the Blue Pew Bible. So Deuteronomy 8, I mean, sorry, Deuteronomy 17 and 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to read 1 Samuel chapter 8. Let's stand together at the reading of God's word. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his first son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. And they took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing, doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him, and he said, these will be the ways of the king who, who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest to make his implements of war and equipment of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers, to cook, to cook, to bake. And he will take the best of your fields and vineyards, and olive orchards, and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your grain, and your vineyards, and give it to his officers, and to his servants. And he will take your male servants, and female servants, and the best of your young men, and your donkeys, and to put them to his work. And he will take a tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice, make them a king. And Samuel said to them, to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. Someone recently told me this story. As a bagpiper, I play on various occasions. I was once asked by a funeral director to play 
at a graveside service for a homeless man. He had no family or friends, so the service was to be held in a pauper's cemetery in the backcountry of Kentucky. As I was not familiar with the backcountry roads, I got lost, and finally I arrived an hour late. The funeral director had already gone. The hearse was nowhere in sight. There were only diggers and the crew left. They were sitting under a tree eating lunch, and I felt bad. I apologized to the men for being late, and I went to the graveside and looked down at the, and the vault lid already in place with a few sho shovels of dirt on top. I wasn't sure what to do, but what seemed right to me was to fulfill my promise to play. The workers put down their lunches and gathered round. I played out my heart and soul for this man with no families. I played like I'd never played before for this homeless man. As I played Amazing Grace, the workers began to weep. They wept. I wept. We all wept together. When I finished, I packed up my bagpipes and started for my car. My heart was full, and I felt like I had made the right choice to play, until, as I opened the door to my car, I overheard one of the workers say, I've never seen nothing like that before, and I've been putting in septic tanks for 20 years. <laughs> wonder if that's ever happened to you. It seemed right. It felt right to me, but then you find out some new information and you realize, yeah, that was foolish. I, I make some observation, it seems right, it felt right, but then you look like a fool. Proverbs fourteen twelve warns us about this. There is a way that seems right to a man. What well, how's it end? But it ends in death. It seems right when you analyze it from your vantage point, your education, your, your, what you can see. It seems right, but it leads to death. And it's a warning. The, the, the wise man of Proverbs is saying, just because it seems right doesn't mean that it is right. So doing what seems right can lead you to, to do something foolish. So you need some more information. It doesn't mean that what seems right is definitely wrong. It just means that you would want to back up what seems right with some other advice. You might want to read your Bible. You might want to get some counsel. But then there are times we actually know what is right. You know these times. You know what's right. Yet you prefer what seems right to you. you. You actually have been given wise counsel, but but that voice gets drowned out for the louder voice in your mind. And so you choose to obey your voice over what is wise counsel. Proverbs twelve fifteen warns us about this as well. The way of the fool seems right to him. But a wise man listens to advice. The way of the fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. Listening to advice, but still choosing your own voice, Proverbs says, that's foolishness. 
And so I started thinking about this. When did, when did this kind of thinking begin? When did this kind of foolish thinking begin? What, when did what seems right to me begin winning out over what I know to be right? How would you answer that? When, if I look in the Bible, does this begin? What seems right to me begins to win out over what I know is right. When does that begin? Genesis 3. That, I told you a few weeks ago, that's the answer to every question when I say when it began. Genesis 3. Adam and Eve know exactly what's right. It's not very complicated. Guys, there's just one tree. I mean, it, we're not going to scatter the trees all over the place. Just, this, let's, just get, let's just say, I'm putting this one tree here so you know I get to decide. God gets to decide. But everything else, let's... Let's find out how we can use it together for, for your benefit and for my glory. They, they know what is right, but what seems right to them wins out. And this, this chord that gets played off key gets replayed over and over. Remember I've talked about this many times where I said, think about the Bible as one big story. And as you hear different stories you hear chords that get played over and over and over again and those chords don't just get played through the Bible they get played into your life and here instead of hearing God's voice and obeying God's voice they decide uh, no we prefer our own voice and this chord it gets played, replayed over and over again through the Bible, especially in First and Second Samuel. I prefer my voice over what I know is right, and it's gotten replayed in my life. It's gotten replayed in your life. So what I want to do is slowly walk through this story. I think I have five or six different points here. Just, we're just going to walk through the text and we're going to watch this bad, corrupt chord get played and we just want to learn. I don't want to, I don't want to play this chord. I don't want to find myself in this particular place. First of all, verses 1 through 3, the setting. If you remember at the beginning of chapter 7, there was a revival. A revival broke out in Israel because the people had turned away from the, the sexual, cultural idols of the time, and they turned back to Yahweh, the, the Lord. And this, I, this, this revival breaks out, but now when you open up to chapter 8, you don't realize it, but 30 years has gone by. 30 years has passed by, and the people, unfortunately, have their confidence in the Lord has eroded. They've forgotten things. And unfortunately, we also learn about Samuel. He's now an old man. And sadly, we hear a familiar storyline. Did you pick it up? Samuel's picked up the same blind spot that Eli had for his sons. Remember Eli's wicked sons? Eli knew about their wickedness, but he still put them in a place of power. Samuel, somehow, he has this same blind spot. And he puts his two sons who are taking bribes in positions of power. So Samuel, although he's a great leader, he's not the Savior. 
And so that's the setting. And so in that setting, verses 4 and 5, these people make a request. And I would say this is a reasonable request. The, the elders of Israel gather together. They come to Samuel and they say, look, we, we see your sons. They don't walk in your ways. And we'd like for you to appoint us a king. We don't want to follow your sons. So it's a, it's a reasonable request because Samuel's old and we don't want to follow your sons. That seems reasonable to me. It is reasonable. And again, they, they want a king. That's actually a reasonable request. Why? Because back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, which is where I want you to turn, to, turn with me, the Lord, uh, the Lord says through Moses, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving to you, that's the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, and you possess it, then you're going to say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations around me, that you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And then he gives stipulations. He's got to be one, one from your own brothers. You can't have a foreigner. And then notice verse 16. He must not acquire. It says that twice. He must not acquire. Verse 17. He must not acquire. He's not to acquire many horses like the Egyptians. That, that was like military force. He's not supposed to acquire many wives for himself, verse 17. In the end of verse 17, he's not to acquire excessive gold or silver. So you can have a king, he's got the same title, but he's really going to be a different kind of king. He's not going to be one that's going to amass power for himself. Instead, verse 18 He's going to write for himself a copy of God's law, and he's going to read it every day. So you are going to want a king. I'm going to appoint the king, but this king's not going to be amassing things for himself like other kings, like other nations. Instead, he's going to live underneath my law. He's going to have a voice that's bigger than his voice, and he's going to rule accordingly. And so it's not an unreasonable request that they ask for a king. Third here, the, the problem, verses 6 through 8. The problem isn't their request for a king on paper, looks good on paper. The problem is the request in their heart. Samuel thinks they're trying to replace him. And he comes to the Lord, God, they're trying to replace me. <laughs> I don't know how the Lord looks at Samuel, but like, dude, it's not about you. It's about me. Samuel, they're not really just trying to replace you because guess what? You're going to be replaced one day. Really, in their hearts, they're trying to replace me. They're re trying to replace Yahweh. And one commentary says this, we what we have here is simply an old idolatry with a new twist. An old idolatry with a new twist. And you see it in verse 8, do you not? Verse 8 Samuel, or God says, it's just like when they were in Egypt. And this people, they have a long, nurtured love affair for their own voice. They have a long, nurtured love affair for their own voice. We want to obey our own voice. We want our voice to be king. We want what we want. And it started as soon as they came out of Egypt. What's the first thing they do when they go to Mount Sinai? They build a golden calf. 
It's, so, it's such a painful story to read because you think you're just not that far from slavery. And as soon as you get out, you're saying, well, let's go back. Let's, let's build a golden calf. Let's go back into slavery in our minds. And then, of course, they come into the promised land and they get all these things that God has given them. And soon enough, and we saw this in, uh, last week in chapter 7, they start serving the cultural idols, Baal and Ashtoreth. So this, these people have this long love affair with their own voice. And they keep chasing after idol after idol. And now in chapter 8, it's not a cultural idol, it's a political idol. That's why it's the same old idolatry with a new twist. We, we've got a new idol. Our last idol wasn't working for us. So we want a political idol. Uh, uh, try to imagine this. The people of God... Instead, instead of putting their trust in God, they put their trust in government. Can you imagine that? Yeah, you can. It's not the outside people. It's the people on the inside. They, they know the living God. They've seen, they've witnessed what they've done. They can go back to the Ebenezer Stone and say, look, remember what God did for us. He rescued us. Those people say, we're not sure God's going to come through for us, so we'd like to have a good government. We'd like to elect a king, and we want this king to obey our voice. Maybe their enemies were threatening Maybe things were breaking down in the culture and people thought the culture's out of control. But whatever it is, they weren't sure God was going to come through, so they want a human king. And they make politics their idol. Now, I'm going to come back to that point, but let's kind of keep moving through here. So what we have so far is the setting. We have their request, which is a reasonable request, but we see the problem is a problem of the heart. They really want their own voice to be king. And then we have this very ominous warning, verse 9. You shall solemnly warn them, Samuel. Gather them together and, and, and make it as crystal clear as you can the direction they're moving. This, this feels like a parent's conversation with a teenager. I can see the direction you're moving and I want to make it crystal clear that direction is disastrous. Remember Proverbs 12, 15. The way of the fool seems right, but the wise man listens to advice. So the wise man here is the Lord, and he's delivering this great wisdom. You can't possibly, you can't possibly miss it. And there are frightening consequences to making someone else your king other than Jesus. So you noticed in the repetition, did you not? He will take. Starts in verse 11. Six different times. I mean, usually the Bible, to emphasize something that says it three times, well, six times. I mean, just in case you're really dense, you can't possibly miss, he will take. And the Hebrew, it mean, it, it's, it's the Hebrew word, so it's, you say it, lakak, which means he will take. That's what it means. It means he will take. 
He will take your sons, verse 11. He will take your daughters, verse 13. He will take the best of your property, verse 14. He's going to take 10% of whatever's left of your property. Verse 16, he will take the people you rely on and he's going to use them for himself. Instead of you being able to use them, he's going to take them. Verse 17, he's going to take 10% of your flock. And when your flock multiplies, he's going to take some more. I mean, there's no lack of clarity. I don't think anybody in the crowd's going, I wonder what this king's going to be like. I don't think anybody's scratching their head. They're saying, well, whatever, whatever he just said, I know he said he's going to take. He said it six times. He's going to take. And just in case this six-fold repetition's not enough, verse 17, you shall be his slave. Now, just try to imagine how that felt like to the Israelites. If you mention slavery to an African-American person today, it has a different impact on how they think about it. Think about these people. They've been in slavery for 400 years. It's it's the narrative of their life. They can't get away from it. God's always pointing them back to, remember, we don't want to go back to slavery. And here Samuel says the thing that they couldn't possibly miss. He's going to take, and in the end, you're going to be be a slave. And again, even if that wasn't enough, there'll come a day, verse 18, you're going to cry out for the Lord, and he's not going to answer. I mean, this is devastating. This is disastrous. You, you, the parent telling the child, you are going in the wrong direction. I'm just going to tell you as clearly as I can. Samuel knows these people, but they, they have this nurtured, long love affair with their own voice. He knows they're just about ready to play this fatal chord. And so he uses this strong imagery to try to get them to turn around. And maybe somebody here this morning... It's just about ready to play that same chord. You know what's right. You know it. But your voice is bigger. And you just needed someone to say out loud, He will take. If you go down that way, He will take. If, if you're the teenager flirting with sexual activity, he will take. If you're the, the teenager thinking that you know what's right and you don't need to listen to godly advice or your parents, he will take. If you're the business person inching towards something unethical, if you're the business person thinking one more sale, one more promotion, And then I'll be happy? Well, he will take. If you're the person in pain hoping that one more shot of opioids is going to make me feel better, he will take. If you're the angry person trusting that you can shout and threaten your way to the way you want, he will take. See, any other idol that you put your trust in other than Jesus, he will take. Jesus says in John 10, 10, I have come that they might have life and and have it to the full. You know this verse. 
What's the beginning of the verse? I tell you the truth, Jesus says, the thief comes to take, to steal, to kill, to destroy. It's exactly what Samuel's saying to these people. You're, you're heading towards a thief, and he's going to take. He's going to take everything you have. He's going to take your soul. So don't be a fool. The warning couldn't be stronger. Verse 19, the response. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. No. Teenager stomping their foot. No. Notice the change of tone. There shall be a king over us. Just, just reading it is devastating. These people are fools. They are shouting down God's own voice. And they, they've moved from a desire for a king to a demand for a king. Anytime you move from desire to demand, you're getting towards idolatry. When a good desire becomes a demand, you're moving towards idolatry. And they have a desire, and now it's a demand. Samuel, we're only going to go down one road, and this is the, de the demand that we're making. And you can be sure they're moving towards idolatry. And their current idol is politics, as I said. Now, Tim Keller says something very helpful here. It's very helpful to us. Listen to what he says. One of the signs an object functions as an idol is that fear becomes a chief characteristic. So you're trying to ask yourself, how do I know if something's an idol, Paul? How do I know that? Well, one, a desire becomes a demand. That would be one way. Another way is I become fearful. I get wrapped up in fear because whatever I want's not going to happen, or if it doesn't happen, I'm afraid. If our counterfeit God is threatened... Our response is panic. We don't say, what a shame or how difficult. Rather, we say, this is the end. There's no hope. See that panic? This may be the reason why so many people now respond to U.S. political trends in such an extreme way. When either party wins an election, a certain percentage of the losing side talks about leaving the country. They become agitated and fearful for the future. When the political leaders are out of power, they experience a kind of death. They believe that if their policies and people are not in power, everything will fall apart. You hear that? Opponents are not considered to simply be mistaken, but opponents are evil. That's, that's when you know you're moving towards a political idol. People who have politics as an idol have put the kind of hope in the political leaders and policies that once was reserved for God and the work of the gospel. Now, we live in this kind of environment. Samuel 8 couldn't be more appropriate for us. Probably should have preached this a couple weeks ago. It, 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 it's a part of my heart as I watch news channels, as I read news blogs, that I get captured by this. And it can be part of yours. And it doesn't mean it's unimportant. But it's not all important. 
And when it becomes all important and you become devastated by it and the other people are always evil, then you just need to step back and check your own heart and say, I might have an idol here that I'm assigning some responsibility to a person or a policy that really was meant for God. So a warning for us. Finally, this sad conclusion. Verse 22 Samuel hears these words. He goes back. I love this little phrase. I wish I had time to think more about it. He repeats them in the ears of the Lord. You just get that feeling that they have a very tight relationship. So he he goes back and says, God, you're not going to believe what they said. Not like God didn't know it, but. And what must have really shook Samuel, God says, obey their voice. And make them a king. I wonder what the implications for that are for parenting. That's another sermon. (laughs) But what a terrifying place to be. That you only hear your voice now. Your voice wins. You get what you want. The elders of Israel uncoupled themselves from God and they hooked themselves to the world. And as we're going to see as we move through the rest of 1 Samuel, the results are disastrous. Just make a couple of comments here. God granting your request may not be a sign of his favor, but of your foolishness. Just need to think about that. It's possible that you pray for something, you get it, and you think, well, I prayed for it, I got it, that's awesome. Might be your foolishness. It's frightening, number two, it's frightening to consider that sometimes God gives us our request to our own danger. I mean, if I'm Samuel, I'm reasoning with God and saying, God, just say no. I mean, they said no, but your, your voice is bigger. Go, say no, but it's just worth thinking about how God's trying to be in partnership with these people, and he's willing, like a parent, to say, hey, you guys are going to have to touch that stove one time. So we shouldn't be too upset if he doesn't give us what we want, even if it seems right. Third, God can redeem the most foolish request. He can redeem the most foolish people who shout him down. This foolish note is replayed in John 19. You're familiar with it. Pilate brings out Jesus. Here is your king. And what do the Jews say? We have no king but Caesar. We've coupled ourselves to the world. We have uncoupled ourselves from Yahweh, and we have coupled ourselves to the world. The cord is being replayed in John 19. And Pilate can't believe it, maybe like Samuel. And he says, shall I crucify your king? And they shout back, crucify him, take him away. Never has something so foolish 
been shouted in all of the world. And yet God, he obeys their voice. A few hours later, John 19, verse 30, Jesus hangs on a cross and he whispers, It is finished. Jesus, in a whisper, is shouting to God, I paid the price for their foolishness. And I'm bringing some of these fools home. That's the gospel. So no matter how terribly you've played this chord, no no matter how often you have played the chord, no matter how foolish your words have been even against God, he's got the grace to save the most foolish person here. Isn't that great? But we want to take stock of ourselves. We want to ask ourselves, where am I in terms of what idol, what, what desire has become a demand? What seems right to me that must be right? Does anything else have a hold of your heart that you maybe aren't aware of this morning? Maybe you're like these people, you've heard the wise wisdom, but just your hunger for it is so much greater. And you just want to pray to God, God, can you just help me reverse that hunger towards you and away from that thing or person? Have you heard the grace of God? It is finished. I can pay for the most foolish people here. Let's pray together. Lord, we are humbled by this passage because we see ourselves in it so easily. We are year, we know your faithfulness, but years go by and we forget. And we get our hearts attached to something else and then that becomes our savior, a functional savior. We, we feel collectively, we know that and especially politics is that the whole media drives us to make politics the savior. And so we just confess and repent of that. But there are all kinds of idols that might have a hold of our heart here this morning. And that voice is so loud. I pray that you would not allow our voice to win out. But we would hear very clearly your grace. Your warning that he will take. And your grace that you have come to give life. And by your Holy Spirit may we choose life. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.